Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Rich. Today we're going to be talking about the labor platforms of the Democratic candidates for president. Today I'm joined by Earl. Hello. And by Lisa. Hi. Lisa, I believe this is your first appearance on Punching Out. It is. Thank you. Are you excited? Very. <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Welcome aboard. We're excited to get a new voice on the uh, out in the air of community radio. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So what uh, inspired this episode was our sense that the candidates running for president this year seem to be uniquely pro-labor, pro-worker. In a way, we haven't really seen a Democratic candidate be since Jimmy Carter, if not before, uh, you know, the last of the New Deal coalition. Um, so I figured we could talk about why uh, the candidates this year seem to be more sensitive to labor rights and then really get into the nitty-gritty of their platforms and where they differ and ultimately where we think uh, the best candidates and the best proposals uh, will be. Remarkably, there's a lot of uh, consensus among the candidates about what the future of American labor should look like. So I, f I figured I'd just run down uh, a lot of the things uh, they all support or they're all co-sponsoring, and then we'll just talk about why they matter and what a difference that will make uh, for the American workers. So just to name a couple acts, there's the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, uh, which would outright ban right-to-work laws so uh, that would benefit unions by maintaining fees. There's a Schedules That Work Act, which would guarantee predictable schedules for workers. This is something we've talked about in the show uh, quite a bit, how irregular schedules really uh, mess with your peace. Uh, there's a Paycheck Fairness Act. Uh, Bar employer, which would bar employers from using employee salary history to determine wages. Uh, family Act, which would guarantee 12 weeks of paid family leave. Uh, right now, I believe it's zero. Uh, yeah, so, it's, it's hovering right around zero. So that would be an infinity improvement. Right, yeah. Uh, health math genius. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. The Healthy Families Act, which would require most businesses to provide full-time workers with at least seven days of paid sick leave, which you know, not the most generous, but again, it's zero yeah, now. Yeah, again, so we're creeping up there. We're creeping yeah. up. Um, and then uh, raise the wage act, which would raise the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Again, not great, but yeah. um, it's seven ninety now. It's, it's yeah, I think so. It's yeah, it's, it's fascinating insane. how much things have stagnated because right. the Democrats have decided to ignore labor for fifty years. Right. And then uh, I think this might be the most significant, in my opinion. Though I'd be interested to hear your opinions. Uh, Domestic Workers Bill of Rights Act. So one of the famous loopholes in federal labor law, going back to the New Deal is that domestic workers don't have a right to organize. Um, and this has always kind of had racist origins uh, because most domestic workers in the 1930s were black women. Uh, so it was a way of excluding power from what at the time was uh, the Jim Crow South or excluding them from power and what at the time was the Jim Crow South. Uh, so this would amend federal labor laws to extend protections to domestic workers um, who are increasingly large part of the economy uh, and increasingly have been excluded, you know, at the same time from um, labor law protections and union membership. So, you know, what do you guys think of these? Like, what, why, why, is, why are these significant? And what do you think is the most important? Man, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what is the most important. Uh, uh, it's hard for me to like quantify something like that. But um, I mean, certainly the the conversation about. Um, you know, class in the U.S. has shifted recently since, you know, Sanders' campaign in 2016. And since then, there's been much more talk about class and working people. Uh, so I think in general, that's likely why, I mean, a lot of the Democratic candidates are straight up, have been playing catch up with Sanders in terms of like the things that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So for them to, you know, all sort of be in like, oh yeah, the minimum wage. And like, these are all things that they need to do to remain politically like just current basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, very cynically, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of people are just kind of like, well, yep, this is, I guess what I'm doing now. Cause I gotta get elected, you know? Um, but just in terms of 
they're all important and they're all good and I'm happy that it's happening, but I'm just being like cynical about it, I guess, as to why these things are being talked about now. So. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily cynical. One can be critical of, oh, okay. the, of the intentions, you know, behind them as a kind of opportunism. But mm. I, I mean, the, it's to be lauded, I guess, that there is a shift in the window of political agreement that we have moved into a space where uh, things that we haven't heard, as Rich said, for decades have a kind of appeal um, or have the veneer of being, you know, things uh, around which people of diverging um, democratic, you know, democratic candidates of diverging ideological uh, positions can also agree on when you look at like the list of co-sponsors for these bills, I mean, the ones that are at least in the Senate, um, there's a variety of them that are being co-sponsored by all Democratic contenders that are currently in the Senate. And uh, even though we know that they're not necessarily aligned Mm -hmm. politically or ideologically, but these particular uh, legislative movements seem to have uh, arrive at a you arrive at a point of consensus. Yeah, I, th- I think you're pointing out when we were uh, you know preparing for this episode that even Chuck Schumer, yeah, uh, no no friend of labor, clear, <laughs> right. has supported most of these or some of them. Uh, not all of them. Or, or, I don't think I don't think the the domestic. I was just all right. So that. he's still no friend of labor, uh, <laughs> despite his uh, his you know band aid or of support over some of these these items. But uh, nonetheless, you know. Just to build on what Earl was saying, I'm happy to see this opportunism. It means workers' mobilization and workers' organization since 2016 is working. Right. Politicians feel like they have to address our needs to get our votes or they're risking another catastrophe like 2016. Uh, so really it's just a question of how far can we push them and you know what, what can we achieve you know, beyond this, this consensus – so the, the AFL-CIO president, Richard Trumka, uh, has been pretty prominent lately uh, making the point that the AFL-CIO is really looking for um, a strong commitment to labor rights from its candidates or they're not going to endorse. So that's, you know, insofar as there's labor power in the United States, there's 12.5 million workers under the umbrella of the AFL-CIO. That's it. So, you know, what they want still matters within the Democratic Party. And right. it's interesting to see them, you know, finally start to throw their weight around, to feel like they have room to throw their weight around in a way that they haven't. You know, they've been playing defense for so long, right. trying to shore up their numbers. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great to see labor sort of, it does feel, I mean, you know, it does feel like they're more on the offensive now than they have been in a, a really long time. And just the fact that the candidates, like you said, like you pointed out, are you know, taking notice and actually sort of aligning themselves with labor's demands just, again, is proof of that they're gaining strength, you know. I mean, with the the successful teacher strikes and things like that, it's just, it's hard to ignore. They can't ignore it anymore, which is great for all of us. Yeah, certainly labor militancy, uh, visible labor militancy, especially the teacher strikes. We got a new one brewing in Chicago as we speak. Oh, right. Um, You know, I think forces candidates to take notice you know when labor's quiet and quiescent they can ignore us uh but when we're you know out there chanting and withholding our labor they have to listen to what we have to say i mean i guess i was just thinking about what the relationship is ultimately between the legislative uh these kinds of legislative um acts uh changes that are being supported and the workers as such might be that is to say worker power that's consolidated in the strike or in worker action mm-hmm. um, and uh, legislative wins they're not necessarily the same thing no um, and and simply by sort of attesting one support of a legislative change doesn't necessarily uh, you know worker worker strength and, and worker solidarity is is potentially found somewhere else. Um, and it, and there's also the question of how I guess a candidate would sort of relate to that, um, not just the legislative aspect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's it, the legislative, the, like the legislative um, support is taken as sort of a, uh, a like a symbol mm-hmm. or as a signal right. 
that one is on board with labor. Right. But the goal of you know of any labor movement is for improved workplace. You know, it's not it's not for the legislation. The legislation is a means toward the end of improved workplace conditions and like improved worker power right. or like strengthened worker yeah. power. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like while so while we're happy to see these things, you know, the the minimum wage for uh, you know, raising the rising to fifteen and some worker protections and stuff, is it actually doing anything to strengthen the worker or is it just trying to like band aid things that have been happening for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to be critical of these consensus opinions or legislation opinions. They're still, you know, I think we, we all self-identify as socialists. So our, our worldview is very much that power needs to come from workers. Uh, any power given by the state can be taken away by the state. Right. That's probably the key lesson of the New Deal. So the positive angle to this is mm -hmm. that it creates a space where union organizing is possible right. in a way. You, you need... Within a capitalist society, you need at least a legislative framework uh, to start organizing and building power. Um, you know, if you have the state fully against you, uh, it's very difficult to uh, organize, mobilize, uh, attain concessions. So here, I think you know the most important things. You know, like I said, is domestic workers' bill of rights act. So that expands the available population of workers who can organize. That's a big deal, right? Sure. And then also outlawing right to work. So creating a condition where unions can collect dues, uh, and provide services for members without free riders removes a major impediment to organizing and building power. So, you know, the ultimate source of power is ourselves, our institutions, uh, but the framework, the legal framework in which we operate matters too. And yeah. so that, that's where I think these are really important moments for uh, the labor movement and labor politics writ large. Well, just in, to that point, I want uh, you know, I think th I agree with you, and I think that the uh, you need to have, you know, the legislation is is necessary in a variety of different ways in order to make the grounds for organizing possible that have become more and more difficult. Uh, you know, what is the how, what is the percentage of people who are in a union right now? It's it's what is it? Something dropped us to something like ten percent. Yeah, it's about it's about ten twelve percent. Um, uh, which is a historic low, and so there has to be a way to uh, you know, increase uh the right to participate. Um, and that will necessitate certain certain legislative changes. But just in terms of what, uh, you know, what is to what extent um, are there legislative fixes or, or technocratic fixes? I was thinking about this in regards to um, Warren's long and and quite detailed plan empowering American workers and raising wages, where she talks about graduate student employees and their right to work or their sorry their right to unionize. So I um, I'm committed to this topic for a variety of reasons, but it caught my eye because she talked about the limits to unionization or the limits to graduate student unionizing as, uh, you know, coalescing in National Labor Review Board rules. That is to say, Obama in 2016 determined, this is what she says, that graduate students who get paid for teaching or research are quote unquote employees and therefore have the right to unionize. So that I would like to say is a very uh, Rosie <laughs> take on the you know on uh, the National Labor Review Board's 2016 shift, which uh, true um, by the letter of the law would uh, reclassify graduate students as employees, but the extent to which then graduate students have been able to win the right to unionize at campuses you know across the country has been um, you know, an uphill battle and uh, led by sort of the organizing efforts of at those institutions and fought by the administrative bodies at those institutions. Do you, you know what I'm no, saying? No, no, it's funny how nice liberal professorial types become rabid bosses when it comes to graduate so, students. Right, and trying I say, to so it's not just that you have a certain set of rules that the NLRB is. Uh, is you know enforcing or not enforcing, and so then she goes on to say that with Trump, some of Obama's uh, Obama era rulings are then um, reversed, so that it's more difficult for um, graduate students to unionize. There is also just your faculties that don't. 
actually want graduate students organizing, faculties, administrators, you know, other graduate students who have, you know, imagined themselves in a position they don't see their precariousness as to be improved by a union. So you have all these levels at on the ground. Temp- temporarily embarrassed Harvard professors. Exactly, exactly. You have all these levels of, of, of obstacle on the ground um, to an organizing effort for graduate students, just as an example, for graduate students that have to be overcome, you know, at every individual institution that has to do uh, uh, primarily with gra- grassroots work. Oh, sure. And so, the you know, it's not, you know, it would be great to have a National Labor Review Board that just recognize graduate students as employees, but that doesn't mean that Columbia University is going to do that without a massive legal battle that goes on for years and years and is very expensive. And part of the context of that is that the, the Trump National Labor Relations Board just uh, said graduate students aren't workers. So even that little, that open, small window that Lisa pointed out is very, very small and narrow uh, is closed outright. So, you know, even the the organizing campaigns that exist, um, if they want to get union recognition at all, it has to be outside a legal framework. They have to force the administrator to work with them, which knowing their their obstructionism, they're not going to do anyway. Uh, They say, we don't have to listen to you. We can get injunctions against you because you're not working within the legal framework. So, I mean, it, it, I'm actually glad you pointed that out because it really shows what a double-edged sword labor law can be. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it opens up a space within which the workers can organize, uh, but it also limits the possibilities of the organization. So it's why it matters who's behind the labor laws and who ultimately controls, uh, you know, controls the processes and controls the, the workplaces uh, within which the labor laws are applied. Because as we've seen time and again since the beginning of capitalism they're just going to ignore laws that don't suit them and there's ignore no or try to find ways around right. them and they you know any you know fancy institution has a variety of means at their disposal in order to quote unquote legally um stymie efforts um by graduate students or adjuncts or you know other such or, individuals. Or as an interesting example, WHYY, the public radio station in Philadelphia, their workers just voted to uh, form a union, and the first thing WHYY did was hire a union-busting law firm to obstruct their their organization efforts, their recognition efforts. Jeez. Again, this is a public radio station, right. uh, ostensibly the nice liberals, but right. the second when it comes to labor, they become rabid bosses. Yeah. Uh, so just so just in a more like general sense, going back to sort of what we started the segment with, the this sort of consensus within the Democratic Party. We're happy collectively that these steps are being taken, but they're like the absolute bare minimum, right? Like yeah, the, the, this is the floor, this is, like this the is, basement yeah, floor. This should be, right. And so for anyone that's, you know, that's saying, you know, some of these labor uh, strategies are too, I don't know. I don't know how many people are saying they're too radical or if that's anything like that, but this is absolutely the bare minimum and we need to go well, much farther. Right. If, if you're Fox right, News, yeah. this is socialism come to America. Right, exactly. Like, any and, one of these yeah, laws as far is as, the end of capitalism. Yeah, and as far as in practice, it's just, this is like, w- this is just barely opening up a space to start actual labor work right like right. for the, like cracking the door right exactly where it can yeah. happen yeah. because you know as lisa rightly pointed out once even with the doors cracked it's still the capitalists who are holding the door <laughs> it's right. very yeah. hard and it's also it's not i, I mean it, uh, i think it's it's a it's a little bit of a fantasy to imagine not our fantasy necessarily we of course we have no fantasies we know everything here um <laughs> i'm but, very i'm very practical yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that that you imagine sort of these these gatekeepers. This is also in the language of Warren's plan, where she talks about you know the these sort of forces, these nefarious forces, either at the level of the executive with Trump or evil power and money hungry corporations that uh, you know that make it difficult for worker autonomy and workplace democracy. But at the same time, there are a lot of, you know, that's a a story that we can tell ourselves, I guess, about sort of where the evil is in the system and that you have these um, major players that have, uh, you know, nefarious goals or nefarious plans that with the right legislation, you can overcome. Um, And, you know, thinking about it from the graduate student unionization effort, perspective it's like no there's so many different layers of ideological or practical or emotional um, resistance 
to uh, the idea of a democratic workplace and workers' rights and even, you know, um, worker solidarity as such that isn't is not about its legal possibility. It's even just about its conceptual possibility within any individual workplace that has to be confronted. Um, and changing legislation, while it obviously good and 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 creating the grounds for change, um, that's it's not going to get you there. No, I mean we, we we do live in a society like any workplace has to have the National Labor Relations Act posted in its break room that says you have a right to form a union. They can't do anything about you, but we all know what really happens if you try to form a union, if you you know try to confront your boss in any meaningful way. You're going to get kicked out, you're going to get fired, and they'll just pay the fine and pay the difference in your wages, yeah. and they don't care. Yeah, well, it's, it's worth it to them. Yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a cost of doing business right. for them, right? And like the, the potential lawsuit or the fine or whatever, it's just, you know, to them it's, it's, a, you know, it's much less than having to deal with a union at work. Right. You know? So uh, this is a way of opening the door or getting a crack in the door, creasing the door, but it's up to, it's up to us on workers to force our way through and create the conditions of our own prosperity. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, and that's going to require much more, like, you know, Lisa was saying, much more than legislative, you, you know, it, it's, yeah, going to take people on the ground for sure. Right. Uh, so uh, I do want to wrap up this segment, but I want to point out uh, of the other Democratic candidates, uh, Biden kind of hand waves at, yeah, $15 minimum wage, but he doesn't really have much of a labor platform. Tulsi Gabbard hasn't released anything. Amy Klobuchar, again, just kind of says, yeah, I like labor. <laughs> Tom Steyer is openly a billionaire, so you know, just doesn't have a labor platform. Right. And then most interestingly, Andrew Yang has a labor platform that doesn't want to say the word union. Right, uh, yeah. So yeah. U- UBI guy is, the, at the end of the day, the, very rea- the most reactionary of them, in my opinion. But you know, maybe that's a different episode or a different <laughs> debate to have. I mean, the billionaire guy has a labor plan. It's other people's labor. <laughs> yeah, other people's right. labor. <laughs> yeah, He's got a plan. They're just not going to like it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one working yeah. is going to like it. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna, we'll be right back after this, uh, this quick break. Hey, hey, guys. You know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? news we can't really help with that good news we can help you waste some time at work you're listening to punching out on wayo lp fm rochester your boss isn't listening but we are welcome back to punching out so in the previous segment lisa had introduced uh, elizabeth warren's or at least a segment of elizabeth warren's uh, labor platform uh, so for this segment i think we're going to uh, address what we think are the two most robust uh, labor platforms of any of the Democratic candidates, and then really try to pick apart the major differences to identify the significant differences. You know, in, in the media, people have been referring to Warren's plan as like wildly ambitious or the most ambitious labor plan. Um, but in fact, it kind of <laughs> hers and Bernie's, which was issued first back in August, right. uh, uh, you know, support a lot of the same things. And so I think the main difference between the two of them is where their theory of power is. So you, can you, do you guys want to speak on that? So I was looking at empowering American workers and raising wages. That's Elizabeth Warren's plan. Um, and Bernie Sanders, the workplace democracy plan. Um, both of them, as, as Rich said, are, uh, you know, provide a much more robust uh, labor orientation than any other of the candidates. Um, And they bear a lot of similarities, especially in terms of the current legislative uh, acts um, that we were also talking about that both of them are co-sponsoring. There are a few uh, notable differences just in terms of the content um, that we can talk about at some point. But what I noticed... um, has a lot to do with the gestures of both. Uh, on the one hand, with Elizabeth Warren's gesture of identifying, I think obviously correctly, that American workers don't have enough power. This is something that comes in the first paragraph of her plan. Um, and thereafter, she states, uh, quote, that's why returning power to working people will be the overreaching goal of my presidency. And I was really struck by the nature of that language. Uh, returning power to working people. It struck me as um, a 
a kind of gesture of maternalism uh, that said that you know power inheres you know in this in these legislative acts and in the in the in the in the position of executive and you know as executive i can bestow upon you this lost power in contrast um in the first part of the workplace democracy pan sanders says um one of the most significant reasons for the disappearing middle class is that the rights of workers to join together and bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions has been severely undermined. So he's pointing not to a power that's been sort of taken away and then and can be given again by a benevolent executive, but by the power that workers uh, have collectively when they join together and bargain for the conditions that are due to them. Um, and when he, and he also. Uh, points out in the in the early part of his plan that he wants to establish uh, a national goal to double union membership during the first term in office, whereas uh, in contrast, the sort of first promise that Elizabeth Warren makes in her plan is to pledge as president to nominate a demonstrated advocate for workers to fill any Supreme Court vacancy. So that's those are two separate approaches. One. Um, that union membership will increase and that in uh, the increase in union membership, um, workers will be able to come together and bargain and negotiate for better conditions. And on the other hand, the pledge to sort of create this power directed from the top down, we install benevolent or you know correctly oriented Supreme Court justices who will rule on, on legal questions that are empowering to workers. It's radically different, I think. Yeah, just right there in the, the, the different the titles of the platforms, you're right to call that out. Like so Elizabeth Warren's is empowering workers, which, you know, on the surface sounds great, but it leaves unanswered who's empowering the workers. Right. And it's clearly Elizabeth Warren is empowering the workers. Whereas Bernie uh, Bernie Sanders is is workplace democracy. It's that old labor dream of uh, worker control of the workplace. So it's collective power built through collaboration and solidarity, uh, through democratic uh, lines of authority drawn from within the workers, within the workplace. Uh, so he clearly identifies a source of power. It's the workers. Um, and we, the workers, are the ones who are responsible for building our own power. Uh, and Bernie uh, and his platform are uh, you know, kind of the means to the end, part of the means of the end at least for – workers to do that in my mind that's exactly the way that um you know one should frame their analysis of these two different platforms is through the very opening statements of those platforms is that you know warren defines defines it as top down we're handing something back to you uh and we're the ones to do it and sanders is saying we can do it we can as long as we can join together and we can do it together um and so when you come at it when you read through these proposals from that standpoint, it the the differences between them become much easier to spot. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is actually she goes on to say um, uh, her agenda has five broad goals. The first one: extending labor rights to all workers. Again, this effort, this sort of gesture of 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 bequeathing mm-hmm. um, rights. Um, labor rights are those that are fought for, you know, through the process, through the uh, through the workplace workplace processes. Strengthening organizing collective bargaining and the right to strike. Strengthening organizing. The executive can't strengthen organizing. Yeah. Organizing is is at you know fundamentally something that is strengthened on the ground in the workplace. Um, collective bargaining also. A collective bargaining is in the strength of the the members who are you know you know activating these processes. Um, Raising wages, yeah, sure. The raising wages is something that is uh, absolutely um, within the realm of legislative, you know, like a legislative prerogative. But at the same time, increased wages are something that work- workers also, through the solidarity, through solidarity actions, through organizing, um, uh, uh, fight for, you know, on their own behalf. Right. So one of the one of the big things that I think um, that they both get right, but is sort of the farthest Warren goes as far as I can tell in democratizing the workplace versus its sort of 
just one of the things that Sanders' plan lays out is that they both want uh, a certain percentage of the board of directors to be elected by employees, right? Uh, Sanders, uh, I think, is 45%. Um, Warren, I think, is 40%. Uh, of, the, of the sitting members of the board would be elected directly by um, workers of that company, of, of companies of certain size, not every company. I think Warren uh, puts the, the number at a, a billion dollars in revenue, um, Sanders is, I think, a hundred million or a hundred million on the balance sheets, but then also any publicly traded company. So I think the estimates would say that, you know, something like fifty-six million people uh, would fall under sort of the purview of being working for a company like that, where they would be able to elect the members of um, or some of the uh, members of their board of directors. Uh, so, but that's as far as I can tell. That's where w- Warren stops as far as actually democratizing the workplace, which as far as I'm concerned is the, the path to, you know, if her concern is empowering the workers, then giving them literal democratic control in some aspect is the way to go about it. Uh, so, um, Sanders goes much farther, uh, as far as doing things like, um, you know, giving, uh, giving workers the right to first refusal, right? If a company is going to be sold, um, or closed for any reason, uh, or moved over, even if factories are going to be moved overseas, the employees have right to first refusal um, before that company can be sold to someone else. Um, and that's just like that's just one of the things uh, that he proposed. Yeah, I, I think that's another key difference. So this this is actually not from the workplace democracy plan. It's from Bernie's corporate accountability and oh right, the, sorry, yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you call it? Work co- corporate accountability and democracy plan. Right, so yeah. against that word democracy. Yeah, and. Uh, the key difference. So both of them want uh, worker representation on corporate boards. Uh, the key difference are in the details. Earlier, already pointed out the the dollar difference. So for Warren, it really is just the real big players in the economy. Uh, for Bernie, it's much more expansive. More significantly, just based on what we've been talking about, for Warren, it's enough for workers to have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. As long as they're represented, that's far enough. For Bernie. It's about building worker power, and that means material right. uh, control of uh, of their workplaces. So workers will get an ownership stake right. in the places they work, and you know, uh, yeah, the, the so, same. Like, the, the, sorry, sorry, no, I was just going to say the the plan calls for the sharing of uh, of shares, right? Condition yeah, of, right. You yeah, know, blogging on that. Yeah. So you know, corporations we know look out for their shareholders, <laughs> right? So it's just turning that in its head. When your shareholders are workers, it means you have to look out for your worker shareholders now, right? Uh, with the goal of ultimately, I think making these corporations worker cooperatives. So yeah. you know, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe maybe that's my fantastic. No, no. Uh, I mean, I vision, think that but, I think that some of the some of the things that he laid out in this uh, in this plan speak definitely directly to that. I mean, so what I was going to say when I was, sorry, I interrupted you before, but what I was going to say was that the same, the same numbers apply to uh, these companies that apply to the um, members of the board, right? So any company that's a hundred million revenue or any publicly traded company, the, the shares they're saying a, a minimum, uh, 2%, 2% of the shares need to go to the workers yeah. a year uh, until they meet a minimum of 20% of the shares. So 20% of any publicly traded company within well, ten years apparently. If the you know again, I'm not a math genius, but that seems to be how that would work out. Uh, within ten years, twenty percent of all publicly traded companies would be owned by workers. That's huge uh, alone. Even if that was the only thing that he was doing in a vacuum. But then besides that, he's suggesting um, a, effectively a federal public bank. Um, that's you know. Uh, so he, he calls it the U.S. Employee Ownership Bank. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I was looking for. I couldn't f- remember the name of it. But um, I saw you looking. I got yeah, it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, but that does exactly what you think it would do. If it, it would provide low interest loans to workers who are looking to start or buy out a company or whatever, which I think would go hand in hand with that right to first refusal, they could say, well, we'd like to band together and buy this company. Um, if they can't raise the money amongst themselves, which is, you know, could very well be true. They can, they, there is someone, there's a mechanism there, uh, you know, that society provides to say, okay, cool, we're going to help you take this company over because I think that his whole plan is about, it's exactly that. It's about workplace democracy and worker ownership. Yeah, the, the material foundation is there in a way it isn't with Warren. And I right. think the probably the bank, the public bank he proposes is one of the more radical ends of it in, in a really good way. 
because it would stop you know overseeing it would or overseizing uh, corporations. It would allow uh, workers to uh, run their own workplaces. You know when when the the private equity tyrants you know decide they can't gut the place anymore. Right. You know it's up to us to pick up the wreckage. Well, yeah. At least it's better than not having nothing. So yeah. I was thinking about this. Um, I think that's a really good point. When I read uh, the sort of breakdown of the accountable accountable capitalism bill, where she states, where Warren states her plan to let workers elect board members, she says um, she's talking about GM. She says, uh, you know, there are forty six thousand workers represented by UA, U, uh, UAW went on strike because of the company's refusals to let workers get a fair share of the billions of dollars in profits the company has made. Letting GM workers elect forty percent of the company's board would help ensure that workers get the wages and benefits they deserve. So, just taken as that—that that is to say, board representation—I was thinking to myself, why? So, why does simply being, you know, having board? representation it, it's it almost come it almost comes across like an an underwear underpant gnome scheme <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah <laughs> you know where you have you you know you every you have workers on the board and then you have you know redistribution yeah. and then in the center is a kind of question mark because right. <laughs> exactly. where's the ins- like once right. what is I, I don't see what the incentive is necessarily um without these material you know, without the material component, that if you uh, if you're on a board, you're 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 just you're simply sort of faced with the conundrum of the board class's interests. Especially because you're guaranteed a permanent minority position under, bo- right. under both plans, but the right. Bernie plan at least comes with the added shares and the added right. yeah. you know power that comes from control. With Warren's plan, it's just like yeah. again, seat at the table, but without yeah. any means of enacting that power, it's pointless. Yeah, it's almost like a pat on the head. It's like there, there you go. Are you happy? Like you can sit and you can sit and talk with the grownups now. Like that's yeah. is that that's enough, right? That's I enough mean, I you? also yeah. just thinking about like working at a university and you know imagining a board of trustees that also largely dictates what happens at any given institution and like the idea that if you have some, it's like oh well, if you have four or five humanists. Right. That are on the board of trustees, and suddenly you have a humanities-focused institution. This is obviously not how it works. Yeah, <laughs> who's, who's the president of the university going to listen to? The students, or the professors, or the donors? It's well, you're right, same, but also the, once you and en- once you end up sort of entering that sort of that class dynamic, um, you 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 absorb the the prerogatives of that class, and the, if the board of trustees sort of prerogatives are profit ma- maximization for the corporation, then it doesn't matter that you're a worker. That right. you know, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean you are, unless there's some kind of material investment also at stake. I think that's really important because otherwise, it's just like, well, why? Why do you? Why does this gesture of representation just result right. in increased power? Yeah, I think the lack of mobilization in, in Warren's plan matters. Like, I, I thinking to the last time there was a candidate who had what I thought was a, at the time was a radical labor platform, which was Obama. The big thing organized labor wanted in two thousand eight was what was then called the Employee Free Choice Act, which would have allowed workplaces to organize once a majority of workers in the workplace signed cards saying they wanted to join a union. So, fifty percent plus one, you're a union. So there's no more labor elections or you know NLRB elections, which are very easy to futz with, have a lot of loopholes, and it would have mandated uh, bargaining. So once you were in a union, the company under law had to bargain with you. Hmm. And this was a big part of Obama's campaign in 2008. Uh, when he was asked about labor, he said, we're going to pass card check, which is the, the formal name for it, and we're going to uh, expand the labor movement in the United States. What happened as soon as Obama came to power with majorities in both houses just got shunted away. Yeah. Just nothing. ignored it. Just nothing happened. Service, right? yeah. And the reason that happened is because there's no theory of power behind it. There was no Obama and that kind of neoliberal class of Democrats think that representation is enough or they don't think it matters to give material power out. And they certainly don't think it matters if workers have the capacity to organize their own power because that's not their ideal society. Right. Yeah. And I think that that, I think that you, you see that in like the Warren plan, especially, you know, when you juxtapose it to the Sanders plan, right. That it's, it's still that sort of, while I think, 
I mean, I, you know, just personally, I think that her intentions are probably good. Um, but that's still that sort of critique of like, we'll represent you, we'll give these things to you, uh, you know, um, and there isn't, yeah, there isn't any material like uh, power in there. She, she's a capitalist to her bones. And right. I'm, yeah. I'm quoting her. Like, right. That's exactly. what she yeah, says. Yeah, right. It's, not, right. it's exactly. not like anything she's secret with her. It's, yeah. it's, it, and it's not, she's not a sheep, or she's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like she legitimately believes that. Yeah. She thinks capitalism can be tweaked, right. fixed, burnished around the edges, and made to work for everyone. Yeah. She's about restoring the balance between labor and capital. Bernie's about giving power to labor, right. letting labor control capital, yeah. which is what we as socialists believe is the ideal society. So right. there's a major worldview difference here that matters. They're not the same. They're not. Yeah, they're not the same. And if, that's, if there's one person that's listening to this that's still sort of like on the fence about like, oh, well, they're, they're close enough. It's not. They're not. It's not even close. Like the analysis is very different. Like one is about democratizing the workplace and shifting power to labor. And the other one is exactly that. It's about reforming capitalism to try and put this thing that's by its nature just a, a destroyer of worlds, right? right. Uh, to try and legislate that back into some like the genie's bottle or something. I'm not really sure what the what the, <laughs> what the analysis is there, but it's not. It's inaccurate. <laughs> what is the time that's supposed to be restored? Like, that, I mean, well, that, right. yeah, I mean, that's a great what, question. Right. I yeah. don't. I don't understand. Right. Like what this magical. Yeah. Uh, historical instance is before capitalism ran yeah. amok. I mean, I think she's imagining New Deal liberalism, at least in its ideal form, as like kind of a time when everyone got along. Which no, I'm right, but, wrong. Know, yeah, corporations <laughs> yeah. they still ran the economy. They still you know trounced labor rights. Yeah, uh, it was just they had less power to do so. And then, as we've seen over the past sixty years, yeah, as long as the capitalist class exists, it will use its wealth and power to undermine laborers. Within right. the state, which it by and large controls, and that's the world we live in now, because yeah. they the New Deal suffered them to continue existing, and Elizabeth Warren will do the same. And if Elizabeth Warren does succeed, that'd be great. Until sixty years down the road, when uh, our children are we hosting, don't have sixty years. <laughs> yeah, all right, exactly. all right. Yeah. In a hypothetical yeah. sixty years down the road, when our right. children are hosting a campfire discussion of you know the heat index or something, uh, talking <laughs> about how. Uh, yeah. You know, how yeah. Warren let them down. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of the, you know, the heat index at 60 years from now, which is very, <laughs> you know, very optimistic. Um, <laughs> you know, we were talking about this earlier uh, when comparing their plans, that one can really think about Bernie's labor plan as extending throughout his, right. his campaign um, projects. That is to say, within... Um, Green New Deal, an environmental climate attention, and Medicare for All. Both of them include, uh, you know, are integrated within a larger understanding of work, workplace democracy. Yeah. All right. So I think that's actually a perfect segue to our next segment where we'll discuss the, uh, the kind of broader implications of the Bernie Sanders platforms writ large. So uh, we'll be right back. This is Punching Out. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. Uh, I'm Rich, and today I'm joined by Earl and Lisa. Uh, we've been talking about the presidential pl- the labor platforms of the presidential candidates uh, and in the last segment, we wrapped up uh, by talking about, or introducing at least, Lisa introduced uh, the kind of full spectrum awareness of the need for workplace democracy and worker power in not just Bernie's workplace democracy platform. He doesn't silo it there. It infuses every one of his proposals in a lot of really interesting ways. And it's that spectrum of worker power in everything from the Green New Deal to Medicare for All uh, that really makes him a unique candidate for the movement uh, for social democracy right now. Yeah, in terms of, I mean, there's just, there's, I mean, if you spend any time reading these platforms and sort of like critiquing them, there's really no question about who the best candidate for the working class is, right? And the, the reason being specifically is that sort of 
integrated approach, right? Lisa mentioned the Green New Deal. So how does the Green New Deal empower uh, workers? Well, a bunch of ways, right? First of all, I mean, one of the first things um, that comes to mind is ending the corporate tax avoidance and things like that, right? So how does that empower employees or, or, or the working class, right? Well, it's uh, directly taking funds from the wealthy, right? Like, and redistributing them down. But how is it redistributing them down, right? So in uh, in Bernie's plan, this is a quote from his plan, uh, um, he's talking about generating. Well, so I'm going to paraphrase. I said it was a quote. It was a paraphrase. He's talking about generating three trillion years uh, or three three trillion dollars. Sorry, we don't over, have that long. Over Earl. Ten years. Yeah, I know. We, <laughs> we I don't even. Think, we're just talking about maybe not even having sixty. So three trillion years. Yeah, I just I'm used to talking about space. If anybody listens, this is a lot. I talk about space on the show all the time. So I'm I'm thinking in space terms. Uh, so three trillion dollars uh, over ten years by repealing uh, corporate tax breaks um, that came under Trump, right? And so he says specifically um, of that revenue, two trillion dollars will be used to help fund. Uh, his Green New Deal plan, right? So in his Green New Deal plan, which then you would have to go on to read about the Green New Deal plan, he talks about uh, a federal jobs guarantee, right? Where anyone can get a job rebuilding infrastructure, um, replacing the fossil fuel industry with, you know, uh, cleaner energy tech and things like that. Uh, And so then what you have is not only do you have a way to say, uh, okay, we can guarantee a living wage to everybody, right? That that living wage then sort of becomes the de facto minimum wage, right? Like you don't even have to worry about necessarily any more legislating a minimum wage because you say, okay, well, why on earth would I work for Bezos at Amazon for 13 an hour killing myself uh, selling trinkets on the internet when I could go and make a living wage um, rebuilding the nation's infrastructure, right? So it's it's not only is it is it, um, you know, repurposing our infrastructure and building a more sustainable future. Uh, it's also raising wages across the board, right? Because now there's competition from a society standpoint. Uh, and then beyond that, we talked a little bit about Medicare for all. Uh, how does Medicare for all empower employees, right? Well, now, I mean, simply in one in one sentence, you know, you don't have to worry about losing your health care if you quit your job, right? So now if you're one of those people, and there's a, this is not a small segment of people that are just like just putting up with a job that's killing them that they hate and it's because they just they need the health care that they get from from there so it, it allows more leverage to the workers right like you say oh, well now i don't have to stay here because i can go anywhere and keep my health care like it's not you know so the sanders plan is very well thought out and encompasses lots of areas besides the things that we specifically talked about earlier with direct workplace democracy there's a lot of other uh ways that it's empowering the workers yeah i mean Employer-based healthcare is an interesting relic of a time when CIO unions legitimately imagined that they would be in control of their workplaces in like 20 years. Hmm. Like they would be the ones in charge and they would be the ones administering healthcare on behalf of themselves. And of course, that's not what happened. Instead, it got inverted. Um, And so Medicare for All is probably the most liberatory of his platforms in a lot of ways that I think early elucidated. And then just to build on the Green New Deal point, not only would they be federal jobs under Bernie's labor platform, the federal jobs would be – these federal jobs would be – have the right to organize. Right. Have the right to strike. Right. Uh, have guaranteed wages, you know, like you mentioned. So, you know, again, all these things tie together in important ways. And then, of course, you know, who, who's going to bear the brunt of climate change? It's us. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Us as workers, us as people who aren't billionaires. Yeah. We can't run away to our they're, island somewhere. They're going yeah. to go to their spaceships or their <laughs> right. missile silos yeah. and we're going to – you know, live in the, the humidity and the swamps that come. Yeah, we call it Mad Maxing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about Obama's, what was the, the it was Employee em, Choice? Employee Work- Free Choice Act. Free Choice Act. So uh, just like the language of free choice right. as as a way of understanding workers' rights is really funny. I, I should have known in 2008, but, you know, um, so, you know who amongst us? Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up about it. <laughs> Okay, um, you know, and but thinking about choice as the cat as a category that's sort of amenable to a particular class, it remains within the realm of like acceptable individualism, and it doesn't have it doesn't smack of any kind of scary collective anti-individualist totalitarianism or whatever is being imagined. But um, funnily enough, this the extent to which. Um, Choice is used as a, a kind of boogeyman in the healthcare debate. is really It's really interesting insofar as uh, Medicare for all. If it eliminates the private insurance industry, it's eliminating 
you know, choice that right. we have somehow by having private options, we are allowed to choose in a way. The idea that, um, you know, that people are staying in jobs because they need to keep their health care, that doesn't really sound like a lot of choice right. to me. <laughs> it yeah. sounds actually quite oppressive that one is locked into an employment not necessarily of their own choosing because they have no other access to health care. And so if one wants to, you know, harness the language of choice, one could say that, by activating Medicare for all, you in fact open up choice. Oh, right. sure. In yeah. a way, right? Absolutely. That right. In, you allow then no longer to be, that people no longer have to be tethered to a single job in order to keep their health care, but they can go and they can go onto the market of opportunities. Sure. <laughs> sure. Right. Think, think about what a workplace will look like when workers do actually control them. Like, so, I mean, the oppression of the workplace and the healthcare is obviously one of the big ones. Like we, no one chooses to work in a job. We're there because we have to. But if Medicare for all liberates us from a job and also if jobs are under our control, we can start thinking about things like why are we working 40 hours a week? Right. Who, why am I tolerating these people as the people in charge of me? I didn't vote for any of my current bosses. I certainly wouldn't in an open election, but there are people in my workplace that wouldn't mind having you know, direct things. I wouldn't mind leadership, but having a choice in that, that matters. So right. these are all the things where having shareholder power, having board power, these are all things that allow us to uh, organize workplaces in new ways where they work for us, not us for them anymore. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on, you touched on a couple, uh, a couple important things. One of them is that, the, I mean, the 40 hour work week, right? Like when, Workers have control of the workplace, right? You're, it's, I think it's fair to assume that the wealth will be distributed more evenly, right? Yes. So you don't have to work 40 hours anymore to make a living, right? Which most people, a lot of people can't do now. They got to work 60 hours or 80 hours, over, spread out over three part-time jobs that are precarious as hell. When people have a hard time sort of thinking about democracy in the workplace, all you have to do is, is say, haven't you ever worked at a, at a job where your boss was just a bonehead because they didn't know what was going on on the floor, right? Like whether it's management, uh, you know, dictating weird TPS rules in your office, <laughs> in your office space, uh, or even just, uh, you know, if you're a, a, a work in a restaurant as a server and your manager is trying to tell you how to wait tables and stuff and they haven't waited tables in their entire life or something. And it's just, that's the type of thing that we're talking about. It's like just little things like that to say, okay, well, if you were in charge of electing your management, or you know you might not even need management at that point, but uh, what type of boss would you elect for yourself? Like what type of you know? It wouldn't be somebody that doesn't know anything. It would be someone that has experience and it would make your life at work better. Or maybe even make the decisions collectively. That's a choice you can make. Right, exactly. Like, that's yeah. That's, you know, that's yeah. It's, it's up to you. Like that's yeah. the beauty of of democratic control. Like right. I think the best days at work are the ones where the bosses don't show up. Everyone's quiet, relaxed. Yeah. Nobody's. Zipping around the office to give you orders, you're just doing your work. And right. It gets done fast. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, there's been plenty of articles written about the amount of time that's like, quote unquote, like wasted at work, right? Like you're there for eight hours a day and how, how much of it is spent doing actual work. Uh, and it's not because like you're a bum or anything like that. It's just that there's only a certain amount of work that needs to be done and the rest of it you have to spend your time looking busy so that you don't get fired. You know, so now in a, in a, in a, worker-controlled uh, democratic workplace, instead of staying those extra six hours to kill time on your computer to make it look like you're doing something, you just, just go home. Just go home. Right. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Like, you know, so it cuts down on that. Going back to the four-hour work week and all that, it cuts down on that too. Work less, earn more. Yeah. That's the dream. Right. And no one should be ashamed of that. That's yeah. the best possible world. We work too much and we get paid too little. Right. And it should be the opposite. And the great thing is we can fix it. And we can fix it. And surprise, there's plans to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thinking about what the plan for that is, uh, I have just read this article. It was published a couple of days ago, maybe, or maybe even yesterday by um, Matt Karp, who is a historian at Princeton University. And it was published in Jacobin. It's called, Is This the Future Liberals Want? And it... um, imagines uh, a scenario, uh, it starts out with a scenario of October 2040, where we have um, an almost identical configuration of uh, political contest um, with 
uh, one of the Obama girls, Malia, okay. um, who is a, you know, a reincarnation of her father and then some deranged uh, <laughs> talk show host. No, oh, sorry, retired professionally res- professional wrestling star. Oh, good. Okay. Um, and so, the, so the, this idea is that we're we're it's twenty forty, and we're still enacting the same script, mm. um, where you have a, a Harvard educated, um, smart, technocratic, uh, sensible person um, with good liberal values who's facing off against some cretin um, to a kind of you know in a, in a kind of horse race. Um, where, where then we come to a new understanding of how totally polarized we are as a nation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he sees this sort of trajectory as sort of resulting from what he calls the end of class voting, that as a party, the Democratic Party uh, ceased in the course of the 20th century, ceased to be a working class party. That is to say, not a labor party, since we, it's not technically or never has been, a labor party, but at least uh, a party that was driven by working class interests. That this has shifted over the last 30 years and that we now see um, the Democratic Party as primarily a class party of the professional managerial class, um, you know, who are smartly called when he calls them Patagonia Democrats. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that, yeah, so that we have a sort of a political sphere or political realm in which you have these so-called Patagonia Democrats on the one hand, professional managerial class, uh, largely educated, um, high-income earners, um, liberal values, and on the other hand, sort of a, a, you know, a, a reactionary right that is, it doesn't really have a class consciousness, it's, but it, it borrows from a variety of different uh, registers um, that aren't, you know, in no case are about empowering working people, but uh, might might have working class adherence. But largely, we have just the disappearance of the working class as a political force, um, and so you have uh, high high levels of you know uh, or low levels of voter turnout and, and apathy generally um, because the working class doesn't feel like it's represented, um, and that you can still sort of retain um, coalitions of black and Latino voters who are obviously not finding a home in the Republican Party, but um, the working class as such doesn't feel necessarily drawn to the Democratic Party. And that Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, this is related to his plans, but also just his sort of concept of politics and, and theories of revolution or revolutionary change has the opportunity to change that, right? It has the opportunity to realign the Democratic Party as a party that is focused on the on on class concerns and uh yeah the yeah the politics of the working class um which i think is really interesting because it's a little bit different than sort of imagining like the the cost benefit analysis of any individual labor plan but it's thinking more broadly about what like what the what the class politics are at all and and how we can develop a democratic party that is responsive to or driven by the working class, which again, it kind of goes back to our original conversation about top down or bottom up, um, sort of these, you know, maternalistic understandings of benevolence, executive benevolence versus sort of thinking about organizing workers or giving workers the opportunity to organize themselves. You know, working class politics suggests that the working class itself is the driver of these right. issues, not the, simply the recipient of benefits. Right. Well, on that note, we are going to uh, wrap up this episode of Punching Out. Uh, unusually for Punching Out, that was actually a fairly optimistic ending. Uh, <laughs> right. We got the hope and dreams of everyday democracy waiting for us. <laughs> uh, I do want to finish by uh, uh, by saying solidarity with our comrades, our brothers and sisters on the, uh, the UAW strike line. Uh, every Wednesday... At Driving Park in Mount Reed, there is a weekly solidarity rally with UAW strikers. So with that, this has been Punching Out. I'm Rich. I'm Earl. I'm Lisa. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Punching Out, 
you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.